Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of Welcome love. to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Dot com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Jim McConkie, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you. It's nice to be here, Bill. Good, good. Glad to have you on. I uh, want to maybe preface this episode with just a couple of thoughts, and then I want to give you a chance to kind of introduce yourself. Uh, Jim McConkie is the nephew of Elder Bruce R. McConkie. Is that correct? That's true. And you're also the author of a wonderful book titled Looking at the Doctrine and Covenants Again for the Very First Time, A Study Guide for Families Organized by Location. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that book as well. But but so it's just, yeah, it's good to have you on as an author. It's good to have you on as a as a member of the McConkie family and to kind of touch on uh, Elder Bruce R. McConkie's life a little bit. But I wanted to give you a moment to just kind of uh, introduce yourself, if you don't mind doing that. Well, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Uh, I'm a, a lawyer by trade. Uh, the McConkies, uh, as a family, almost uh, universally have gone into law, and I have been practicing law for about 35 years. I'm a trial lawyer, and I have litigated all kinds of cases, class actions, tort cases, and those kinds of things. And uh, my uh, real interest, however, uh, is the gospel and the and history and the history of the church. I'm married to Judy uh, Miller McConkey and have three children. In fact, one, one child now serving as a mission president in Prague with his family. And then awesome. I have a son, Bryant, who practices law here in town with Ray Quinney and Nebuchadnezzar, and a daughter who's a professional cellist. So that gives you, uh, and, and 12 grandchildren. And so that gives you an idea of, uh, of my family and my background. Excellent. And again, uh, grateful to, to have you with us. I want to start off maybe talking a little bit about your book, and again, it's got a long title, but it's a really cool book, and I've got it right here in front of me, Looking at the Doctrine and Covenants Again for the Very First Time. And maybe if you could just share with us, what makes this book different than 
other books that essentially deal with giving us uh, a synopsis of each of the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants? Well, the purpose of the book was to place each of the sections in historical context so that you could understand what it meant at the time it was written. And once you get the original meaning, then you can apply it. And if you go back and, and look at the Doctrine and Covenants and, and fail to put it in context, then you fail to grasp the meaning and can misapply it. And so I felt it was important to try and figure out historically uh, what was going on, because that indicates uh, a, a more accurate interpretation. You know, you're, you, you might be interested in the genesis of the book. The book really is uh, was written over a period of about 10 years when I was studying with my children. And I had a real concern that if my children didn't understand the depth and complexity of the gospel, and if they didn't face some of these historical issues early, that they would be more prone to being shaken as they found out about these things later. And so it was our custom in our home for my wife and I to study one-on-one with our kids once a week, uh, starting at age 12. And we went through the Doctrine and Covenants and all of these issues that some people find troubling today in the context of the Internet naturally came up. And uh, my son, who's now serving a mission, in fact, in his senior year of high school, which was our last year to study together, asked me to study anti-Mormon literature with him. And so we spent a year studying anti-Mormon literature, and I tried to find the very best literature that I could, uh, except we carved out an exception for the temple because he hadn't been endowed yet. And we went through it together. And uh, he, since that time, and members of my own children just haven't had uh, the difficulty with these uh, modern issues that that have come up uh, in the context of the Internet, polygamy and translating the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham and all those those issues. They were very familiar with them, polyandry and other such things. And uh, they haven't gone through a crisis. And interestingly, some of my son's friends, best friends in high school, have and unfortunately haven't survived. And that's a a sadness that uh, they were taken in by some of these uh, issues that uh, have subverted their faith, as it were. Gotcha. How do you handle then, you know, obviously you're talking about inoculation in a sense and how that's worked in your home. So in your book, for instance, how do you handle, let's say, polyandry in relating that to Section 132? Well, when we went through Section 132, we talk about it in historical context. We talk about Joseph Smith, his practice of polygamy. We talk about some of the wives that he uh, lived with. We point out, I pointed out that some of them were married to other people. Uh, I talked about why this practice developed. And so it became something that they were familiar with. We talked about it, and it wasn't hidden. It was just part of, of Mormon history. In fact, in my book, in section 132, especially in the footnotes, some of that is addressed. And those were basically the ideas and, and the materials that we were we were covering with our kids. So maybe to relate this to your own personal life, how did you growing up develop your own faith that when you encountered these things for the first time, they didn't cause a hiccup for you? Or maybe if they did, if you don't mind sharing some of how you handled that. 
Well, my I went on a mission, and uh, with uh, and while I was on my mission, I had an opportunity in England to study some church history along with the normal things that missionaries read. And when I came back home, I developed a close friendship with Michael Quinn, and he was, of course, deeply into Mormon history. And Michael and I and, uh, and uh, our, our buddy Richard Lambert, uh, as we were going to BYU in the afternoon, used to go down to the Special Collections Library at the J. Reuben Clark Library. And at this time, the materials were really open. They hadn't closed them down. And so we were able to read all about Mormon history, get into First Presidency Minutes, Quorum of the Twelve Minutes, and really deeply immerse ourselves in Mormon history. And so I became far more familiar with these issues just after my mission during my time at, at BYU. And I also had a, a concern generally about my own belief. And it wasn't so much doubt as it was a feeling that I needed to kind of deconstruct my religion and be very honest about what it contained and how I felt about it. Because as a McConkie, I didn't want to believe just because I belonged to a, a strong Mormon family uh, with an apostle and with uncles and cousins who had strong testimonies. And I wanted to make sure I had one for myself. And so I went back and I described this actually in the conclusion of the book that I wrote. And I deconstructed Mormonism and I wanted to consider all of the difficult issues. And so I made a point of studying them and, and sometimes they were challenging, but I felt the solution was to just go at them head on and continue to study them until I was satisfied. Occasionally, I'd have to put something on the shelf uh, and uh, consider it later. And so I did that over a period of time. And during that process, I developed greater faith and confidence in Mormonism and the prophet Joseph Smith on balance than I did doubt and can say that I have my own reasons for believing and my own way of looking at this, which satisfies me and gives me confidence and assurance in the uh, restoration of the gospel, as Joseph Smith talks about it. Yeah, that's important. You hit on a, on a big point, which was that you were open to adjusting your paradigm. And it seems like for, for some members of the church, and I think this is where there's the risk to get in trouble, when we build kind of a, a framework around what we're taught, and we then end up entrenching in that and wanting to hold firm to that, unwilling to to make changes. And Elder Uchtdorf in a CES fireside uh, maybe a year ago or so titled What is Truth spoke at length about how we as church members need to be willing to recognize that some of our beliefs might have to be uh, let go in order to adopt truth. And it seems like you were open to doing that and, it, and that was a very, sounds like a protective shield almost to a deep faith crisis for you. Well, I think, I think so. One of my favorite uh, statements of the Prophet Joseph, it really wasn't his statement. It's found in the lectures on faith, which were probably not written by him, but by, by others. But he endorsed them. And, and, and lectures of faith, of course, were in the Doctrine and Covenants for a period of time. Right. But the but the principle that I'm thinking of in, in the lectures was the idea that if you put your faith in a false principle, 
it will eventually fail you. And so the, the, the article points out that you can't have faith over a long period of time in a false principle. It will fail you. So uh, if I put my faith in some things and I, it wasn't taking me anywhere. And so I, instead of throwing the entire principle out, I adjusted it and I redefined it. And then I tried it that way to see if it would work. And it's a, it's a continual process. Look at all of the facts. Look at all of the implications discard some things and and try it out in sli- slightly differently and see if it works because you you can't have faith in a false principle over time right and here would be my next question which is that when you do that you'll sometimes adopt ways of putting things back together or reconciling things that certainly is not going to fit in with the average Latter-day Saint in, in one's ward or stake. And when you share this new perspective, because it because you find it to be beautiful, it's your truth, you find that there's a lot of resistance and people will almost look at some of those, and I'm not just saying you, uh, Brother McConkie, but, but for members who are in the midst of a faith crisis and who are trying to put everything back together in a way that's reasonable, they find that anytime they talk about those things or share that perspective, they are met with a wall of resistance And it's almost as if those around them almost point a finger to them and say, you've got this counterfeit gospel and and it's kind of frowned upon. How did you, as as you were going through this process and coming up with new ways to see things that wasn't found within the majority of those around you, how did you uh, feel comfortable in that? Well, I felt comfortable on a personal level, and I didn't, I didn't feel the need to inform others of how I was looking at it. In other words, in a gospel doctrine class or in the high priest quorum, I didn't want to raise issues that would disturb others' faith because I recognized that people are all at different levels of knowledge and they face different problems in their lives. And so I wanted to nurture their faith to the extent that I could, and I didn't want to uh, challenge their their way of thinking. But what I found is is that as I taught gospel doctrine or I taught the high priest quorum, uh, these issues would come up and I would talk about my perspective, but I would never make a point of, of, of pressing it or or trying to suggest that that was the only way of looking at it. My approach was as a teacher, for instance, in CES, if I were asked a question while I was teaching, I would say something like this. Well, there are a number of different points of view in the church on that. Take, for example, the idea of whether or not God is progressing in knowledge. And if you read Witso, he says this. If you read Brigham Young, he says this. If you read Wilfred Woodruff, he says this. If you read Bruce McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith, they take a different point of view. And so this is an open question, and you should feel free to decide for yourself which which side you are most comfortable with. And so I didn't try and propose a definite answer. I just talked about the different answers that you find in the Mormon tradition. I really, I really love that. And I think that that's a big key, which is that members who are struggling need as much flexibility as possible. And for those who are kind of stuck in this, in this standard way of seeing things and not really thinking, taking any issue out of the box or thinking of it out of the box. Um, it's kind of nice as you're putting it just for them just to offer alternatives. And so that both the uninformed person in the room now has other things to think about. And the person struggling knows that there are other ways to put it back together, which are reasonable. I like that a lot. For example, most people in the church today have kind of a knee jerk answer on evolution. And they, they think at least in the, 
the area of the church where I live that evolution is uh, contrary to the gospel and and that that's an official position. And uh, I was asked to speak to an Episcopalian group on, on this, actually, in their in their congregation, and they had two or three people, and they expected me to take that point of view. But, of course, it really isn't the church's position. The church doesn't have a position. Right. And so uh, when I was asked to speak on it, they hoped that I would be the foil for the view that religion is not compatible with with evolution, and I, I just simply pointed out that Elder Talmadge and and Henry B. Eyring's dad and uh, had different views. B. H. Robert had Roberts had different views. Bruce McConkie was on the conservative side of that issue, along with Joseph Fielding Smith. But that there really had not been a definite statement on that. So that approach gives people an opportunity to think through these issues for themselves. Awesome. I, I want to start taking the discussion down the road of, of letting you share some thoughts on uh, an Elder Bruce R. McConkie as well as as maybe some issues that that involve him in one way or another. And I want to preface the rest of the interview with this thought. I want to ask you some some tough questions that those who are struggling in their faith would have. And I want to do those questions justice, but at the same time, um, I want to share, and I'll share a point here later on, my love and appreciation for Elder McConkie and for others like Joseph Fielding Smith. And while I, I too have struggled with some of the, the controversy that has arisen at times over some of the things that these brethren have said, um, and I want to ask the tough questions, I want to make it clear to the listeners that I'm trying to do so in a, as respectful a way as possible. And so with that, I want to lead into maybe kind of working backward instead of starting uh, in the past and working forward. The church recently released a article on LDS.org titled uh, The Race and, uh, Race and Priesthood. And in that article, what they essentially do is explain how the priesthood ban, as far as they know, came into existence. They really never go into, because I don't think the church at this point really wants to delve into one way or the other, whether the ban came from God or whether it came from Brigham Young. They've just kind of left hands off, and I think it, it leaves readers to kind of decide on their own. But what the article does do is, by the end of the article, it makes it very clear that some of the side things of that ban probably never should have happened. And, and two of them that come to mind are the theories around the ban, such as blacks being less valiant in the pre-existence or having the curse of Cain, and then also um, interracial marriage being taught as sin. And both of these these were taught in the 1940s at least, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty safe in saying before and after that, but in the 1940s at least, uh, we have documented instances of them calling those two side issues doctrine. And at the end, yeah, and at the end of this article, they, they disavow those thoughts. And I just wanted to get your feelings, maybe just on a kind of a surface level of, of what you thought of the article and what your reaction was to it and, and maybe help the listeners maybe kind of get a grasp of, uh, of another vantage point of what was going on there. Well, th- this, uh, I just welcome this statement with open, open arms. And I, as I read it, I think it really puts the blame on Brigham Young. Uh, and I think it's a, a wonderful statement because of the natural repercussions of this statement. This is going to cause people to place prophetic leadership in a more realistic context. And my own my own feeling has been that we have over the years in my lifetime moved to a point of view where we uh, believe in in uh, infallibility, even though everybody knows we don't. Uh, when 
various brethren, even though there's a difference of opinion among the twelve, speak. It's a it's taken as ex cathedras as the word of God, and and that can get us in trouble. And it did on the issue of blacks and the priesthood. And this is kind of close to my heart because in 19 in the early 1970s, I was the chief of staff for a Democratic congressman. The Democrats, of course, were very much in favor of the civil rights movement. And so this was a issue of deep, deep concern for me personally. And I went back to Washington, and while I was there, I I met uh, Lester Bush, who was in my stake. He had written that seminal article on blacks and the priesthood that at first was very controversial in dialogue. And I read it, and I went to him, and I asked him for all of his original research. And he gave it to me, and over a period of time, I read it all. In fact, I still have it uh, in my in my basement. And after I finished, I came to the conclusion that the church was wrong on this, and uh, that it was it grew out of a history of racism, and it was understandable why, but it was not the it was not consistent with the New Testament, the teachings of Christ, which were very inclusive, and not consistent with the Book of Mormon. And I was I was deeply concerned about it, so I presented that proposition in prayer to the Lord. And this was one of the times in my life where I felt I got an answer, and those are few and far between. This was in about 1977. And the answer came to me, you're right, and if you'll just be patient, this is going to change in a short period of time. And that gave me comfort because I felt justified in taking that position, even though the church had not formally taken that position. And then in 1978, when when the revelation came, you can imagine what a joyous day it was for my wife and I, because we both felt that this was a, a blemish on the kingdom of God. And it was wonderful to see it change. And so that is a subject that I'm I'm kind of deeply familiar with because that was perhaps the most challenging part to my faith in the context of growing up. So I guess that leads maybe to a couple of questions. The first one would be, in that context, how do we reconcile then the thought of our Father in Heaven leading the church and keeping it from, from going astray and yet allowing something like this to to kind of be in the the midst of of church culture and certainly affecting the lives of others in in the limitations that those who were affected by the ban had can you speak for a moment maybe to your thoughts about about heavenly father's role in all of that in a sense of just sitting back and kind of allowing these things to happen well i think what it illustrates is that even if you have the truth uh, and when i say that what i mean is is you have some fundamental ideas that are that are from God, that we approach, we interpret these religious ideas, these wonderful fundamental truths uh, through the eyes of our own culture. And we're blinded, obviously, as we were in the case of blacks and the priesthood. And the Lord apparently, and this is just one of the things we have to accept as true, is willing to allow us to stray from the mark, as it were, and go in directions that are not consistent with the fundamental principle of love and inclusivity. And then at some point, when we decide we're willing to ask 
uh, he is willing to respond. And I, and I must tell you, I, I think it's surprising that it went on so long before there was a correction. But I think it's indicative of the extent to which our own misperceptions and culture can color our ability to see the truth and to get it when we assume something is right when it really when it really isn't do you think that this in any way this kind of the context of what you're talking about pertaining to the specific issue does it apply also perhaps to other issues that are going on in the church right now and the two that I'm thinking of and you probably could name them before I do is some of the women in the church and men too who are having a conversation about women in priesthood and then also the other big issue which is the uh, gays and, and their ability to participate in the church based on current policies and doctrine. Well, I just think there's a lesson in humility. And I, and that's why I'm so pleased that this statement was published because when I, when I teach, when I used, when I teach CES uh, with my wife, uh, uh, these, when these things were brought up a few years ago, it was difficult to talk about them because it almost seemed like some members of the class felt that it was illegitimate. But now, all you need to do is turn to the church's own website. And so it, it makes it easier to talk about it. But the, 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 there are two lessons that we should learn, I think. One is that uh, we don't believe in infallible prophets and we can get off track. And knowing that, we should there should be a certain sense of humility about how certain we are about things that haven't been uh, clearly defined. And so on both of these issues, uh, we should reserve our judgment and think about the possibility of change. And who knows what that change would be. And the lesson here is, is that if we are open to change and we're willing to ask questions and struggle with these issues, then there are answers. The Lord will will respond. And I think, you know, members of the church can can pray about these things and get inspiration and revelation on them and, and be even a little ahead of where the church is. But of course, that doesn't mean that they should be out proclaiming it and trying to change it. Sometimes it's a that those matters ultimately are for the presiding quorums of the church. But but, right. but, but for example, you have uh, uh, Brother Snow, President Snow, and he goes on a mission, and while he's over there, he learns about deification, and the Lord reveals principles of polygamy to him. And some of these things, he, come, he comes back and he tells the prophet Joseph about. And he got these things independently on his own. Uh, long before they became a practice in the church. And so we're all open to communication with God, and we can get revelation and inspiration, and then we need to be patient and wait for our brethren to uh, take us in the in the right direction. And there's safety when the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency do that, because they have to be unified in their opinions before they can really change direction in, in dramatic ways. No, and I agree with that completely. And, and you and I, you and I might differ just a little bit on where on that spectrum, but I think the principles there, which is it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to take a different stance on something that is not uh, an absolute doctrine in the church. 
And, and of course, we can talk about that later. What is doctrine? But the other side of the coin is that we can't force change. We can't, we can't go out in the church and teach this difference of idea that we have as the truth and then, and point out that the brethren are off track. That, that's kind of crossing the line. And so while revelation comes by questions and we want people to, to speak up and to ask things, at the same time, there's a very different spirit about asking a question and and trying to uh, force change in the church. Right. I mean, and I think it's fine to 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 talk about the historical evidence and to make your case, but uh, it's not our role to march around Temple Square. I think people sometimes underestimate how well informed the brethren are and how much discussion is going on, pro and con, on some issues. And as you read the history of the question on blacks and the priesthood in Brother Prince's book on David O. McKay, and he kind of pulls back the veil on what they were, what the brethren were thinking and doing and what positions each of them were taking, uh, there's quite a bit of discussion uh, going on uh, on some of these issues. And sometimes uh, some, some dig in their heels and it makes it more more difficult, but eventually we thank goodness we got to the right right spot. Just imagine where we would be today if in nineteen seventy eight we hadn't made this change. And and that leads to another question and maybe keeping these two issues that are currently being discussed kind of in the background of our mind, going to that nineteen seventy eight revelation, the church in many ways had kind of painted itself into a corner. There were quotes by various leaders, including uh Elder McConkie, that spoke about uh blacks perhaps never having the priesthood. Um, I think we do have one quote quote from Brigham Young that says they would have it, but not until after all the other sons of Adam uh, had enjoyed those blessings. And and looking at other quotes that essentially um, kind of laid out the idea that that this ban was something that was going to last a long, long time. And, And feeling, like I said, they almost kind of painted themselves into a corner in some ways. What were your thoughts? You said you received inspiration in 1977 that this would change and yet here you have your uncle and other leaders in the church who are very I don't want to say sternly but very straightforwardly kind of drawing a line in the sand uh, how did you reconcile your feelings with those of, of other the you know the quotes of other leaders including your uncle well I didn't, I didn't feel a need to correct their their point of view but I, I respectfully held a different point of view. But as we got closer to 1978, you have to remember that, that Bruce R. McConkie was a lawyer advocate. And so as long as the church was taking a position, uh, he would advocate that position. And during that period of time, there was some real thinking going on. President Kimball asked him to write a memo on whether or not there was scriptural justification for denying blacks the priesthood. And uh, President Kimball said, I don't, I don't want you to take the company line. I just want you to take Tell me as an individual, based upon your reading of the scriptures, whether or not this doctrine is justified or, or this policy, we should say, because I don't think it ever was a, a doctrine personally. I think it was a, an unfortunate policy that grew up for various historical reasons. But when Bruce McConkie completed his memorandum, his, his conclusion was that denying blacks the priesthood was not scripturally justified. And so, although people viewed him as absolute when he was asked to carefully consider and give his own opinion it turned out to be different than what the policy of the church was at that time and now a brief message from one of our sponsors the sponsor is a regular listener to mormon discussion podcast he has written the book 77 days in september 
It tells of the story of a man overcoming countless obstacles to reunite with his family after a terrorist attack disrupts the United States. 77 Days is based on a real threat, and while not LDS fiction, it is suitable for an LDS audience. It has sold over 75,000 copies, spent five weeks ranked in Amazon's Top 100, narrowly missed the New York Times bestseller list, and has over 1,800 reviews with 90% of reviewers rating it four or five stars. If you like to read books, you will love 77 Days in September. 77 Days in September is currently available as an ebook for just $3.99 from Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, and Smashwords. Please show your support for this sponsor of our program by purchasing his book, 77 Days in September. And now back to the second half of our episode of Mormon Discussion. And, and I want to be clear. I know that as people listen to this episode, they're going to think that I'm trying to subtly make a case for changes in these other two issues. And, and I've been clear before. I I don't necessarily – I stand behind the church's doctrine, uh, the stance that they take on those two issues. If a change comes, great. But until then, I certainly support the church and their position. But I think it's interesting as we have these discussions and as we talk about this race article in its implications, as you point out, it, it, it forces us kind of down the path of being more humble and recognizing that we are a church of revelation, and that means that any change could come at any moment, regardless of what lines we draw leading up to that revelation. Well, there, you know, there, there are a couple of guiding principles. First, that truth comes line upon line, and it came during the Restoration over a period of time, and it's it's still it's still coming, and so it, that's an exciting proposition. Just think of the article of faith that we believe all that God has revealed, all that He does now reveal, and that He will yet reveal many great and wonderful things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And that's kind of the spirit of Mormonism that enthuses my spirit, because we have much to learn and much to gain in the future from the revelatory process. We we sometimes forget that at some point in time, two-thirds of the Book of Mormon will be translated because it's sealed. And so there, there are major uh, revelations that will that will be coming, and that means that we have mixed. We, we always have a situation where we have a more perfect understanding of some things and a less perfect under, perfect understanding of other things. For example, I don't think in the Book of Mormon they understood the resurrection as well as we do. In the 40th chapter of Alma, Alma gives his opinion on the resurrection, and he has a rather more simplistic view of it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he was exactly right or, or wrong. He just didn't know. And we always find ourselves uh, in that position. Uh, we, we, it couldn't be otherwise. I want to uh, get into talking about uh, Elder McConkie specifically. And, and I want to kind of, I guess, paint the picture first, which is having gone through my own serious faith crisis, what, what led up to that in many ways was me building a paradigm of Mormonism that didn't hold up to the deeper, complex history and the nuance of our very deep and rich faith. And in some ways, it was... It was kind of structured because of some leaders, including Elder McConkie, who, who made statements that were, in a sense, almost kind of forcing their opinion to be uh, strictly seen as an absolute. And so examples would be um, Joseph Fielding Smith, for instance, talking about the age of the earth, or Elder McConkie talking about evolution as a heresy. Uh, some of the things that Brigham Young spoke of do this same thing. And... 
it it feels like when one goes through this crisis and one feels betrayed by the church, it's almost there's this need to kind of react out of anger. And in my crisis, I was very angry with uh, some of the leaders like Elder McConkie and, and President Smith. And I've come a long way since then, and we can talk about some of that. But but I wondered if you can maybe paint a picture of your uncle and maybe share with us so that we don't just see them in this one dimension of of these four, five, six things that they say that, that caused us to really struggle in the faith, but to recognize the the multitude of things that these two men did that were praiseworthy. On my maternal side just happened to be another apostle by the name of Elder Worthlin. And uh, one of the reasons I guess I felt comfortable with allowing the general authorities to have different points of view is it Worthlin's approach and my uncle Joseph Worthlin's approach to some of these issues was different than the approach that the McConkies took. And so I always knew as a child growing up, having sat at both tables, that there was room for disagreement. And I think the problem comes in two respects. One, Bruce McConkie advocated for his position, and he deeply believed uh, these positions. And that placed people in a position where they felt almost compelled to accept it or not feel that they were a part of the of, uh, of the church, but the the anti the antidote for that is simply knowing more. And when Joseph Fielding Smith, for example, took uh, positions on the age of the earth, uh, the antidote for that is knowing that President McKay said that the earth was many thousands of, of years old, uh, many millions and millions of years old. It's it's knowing that Talmadge agreed with him. It's knowing that Brigham Young felt uh, the same way. And so you have to take each leader in the church and you have to be able to put them in a broader context so that you don't allow a particular leader to co-opt your understanding of the gospel or assume that that position is the official position of the church. And and the answer to that uh, problem is a better educational process in the church. We need to know more in order to feel comfortable taking a position, for example, that evolution could be the way that God brought about uh, the creation. So that's the problem, in my view. Right. And and not to to take this point way too far, I guess, but you can see, I, I hope, where members feel like it's a struggle because you have a leader of the church standing up and saying, you know, here's this idea. And not only am I sharing this as my opinion, but I am telling you that from the standpoint of the church, this is an absolute. And and for a member who then feels like all of a sudden they've been given a litmus test for whether they are a fully faithful believing Mormon or not, and how that can be difficult uh, for people who, who are not maybe as informed or feel as comfortable dissenting with a leader on their on their given statement. Well, I agree with you. I mean, and I have, I have tremendous sympathy uh, because there are all kinds of levels of understanding and, and everyone doesn't have the opportunity to spend as much time finding out what every uh, general authority may or may not may or may not have thought on a on a particular subject. But, uh, you know, over time, as I watched uh, Bruce McConkie, uh, he changed his point of view on some things. And uh, he 
when he was convinced otherwise, he was willing to disavow uh, his prior uh, position. And the, the best example, of course, is on blacks and the priesthood. And after the revelation, I've mentioned this before to other people, but we had a family, an extended family home evening, and everybody wanted to hear what Bruce had to say because he'd written all of these things about blacks never receiving the priesthood, and this is the way it was, and this was why it was. And, and uh, we asked him the question, and he said, listen, I want the family to understand something. He said, I repent of everything I ever said, everything I have ever written, everything I have ever thought on this subject. I was wrong. I repent of it. This is a new day. And so when the revelation came, it came in such an impressive way to Bruce that uh, he understood that he was wrong and changed and had a completely different heartfelt uh, position. And so uh, he, while he was while he advocated his position, that didn't mean that he wasn't willing to change. But I agree, he was an intimidating character in, in style and in presence. He was big physically, and uh, it was a challenge, I'm sure, to people. Tell us a little bit about your your uncle on a personal level. I mean, what was he like? What was what was uh, your experiences around him? Um, what did they entail? You know, he was. Uh, my dad died when I was seven, and the McConkie brothers. Uh, he died of polio, and at age thirty-two. And so uh, the McConkie brothers kind of surrounded me uh, in the arms of love, and uh, Bruce did as well. And so I always felt comfortable when he was a 70 or, or an apostle, just, you know, walking into the church office building alone or with his, or with my cousins and just sitting down and, and chatting with him. And he had a wonderful sense of humor and he was very practical and in personal conversation was more open to considering, uh, different positions. One of the things that I remember as a, as a boy, as I went to my family home evenings with the extended family, watching my my uncles uh, and 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 Bruce R. McConkey, uh, his brothers, debating points of doctrine, and they just loved to quote scripture at each other and suggest that it was this way and and talk about uh, doctrine and what the scriptures implied. And so I kind of grew up in a tradition where there was a lot of uh, intellectual inquiry into what the what the scriptures meant. I remember uh, going into his office once with my cousin Stanford, his one his son, and he had his legs up on the desk and he was leaning way back and his arms were behind his head, which was a common position for him to assume in his office with his desk. And, and uh, my cousin said to him, he said, uh, Dad, what's going on in the church these days? And uh, his dad said, I don't know what's going on in the church these days. He said, you'd know a lot more about that. Wherever I go in the church, they tell me it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so he understood. He had a sense of humor and uh, and, and, uh, and kind of put things in a practical perspective. For example, you, you, people look at Bruce McConkie and they say, well, he never approved of studying on Sunday. And that wasn't true. He felt that education was important, and whether it was a Sunday or not, if you didn't have your your uh, studies done, you better do them. And he felt, I know, that the kids at BYU were going to the temple too often, and they ought to spend their time studying more and uh, getting their education. So he had a very practical bent. He really wasn't an extremist when it came to such things as fasting, 
living the uh, living the Sabbath day uh, and those kinds of issues. There was a, a practical side to him, which was you know very forgiving in terms of Mormon practices. But in in terms of theology, he had this deep interest in it, and he was committed to various points of view that he believed were were correct. And he wanted to convince the first presidency in the twelve, and even when they demurred and said he wasn't right, he still wanted to convince them. Gotcha, gotcha. I wanna I wanna ask I guess kind of a twofold question here, which is because he was such a scholar of the gospel was and I want to I want to ask the other one too kind of to follow us up before you answer these but the first one is uh with him being such a scholar of the gospel was there a pressure on you and others in the McConkie family to perhaps read and study more because of that and then the other the other question I want to ask is with him being so imposing on his uh his religious views of LDS theology and LDS faith, was there, did you feel pressured to adopt those views as a McConkie or, or as you kind of talked about earlier, did you feel completely free to have your own perspective? Well, I think the answer is yes and yes. I, I could, I, I think any of the, my cousins and any of the brothers and sisters could speak to Bruce and suggest all kinds of alternatives and he'd tell you what he thought. I mean, you could say, I've been reading the scriptures and I think this means this, what do you think? And he'd say, I don't know, or I think it's this way. And then you'd say, well, what, what about this way? And so there was a feeling that you could discuss it, but this takes me back to what we were talking about earlier. Because I was a McConkie, I mean, it was kind of expected that I would have a testimony. And there was a culture of reading those scriptures and knowing them. So in a family home evening, if you raised your hand to give an answer, it wasn't good enough just to state the answer. You had to say where it was found in the standard works and back it up, which was a great, a great thing. I think it's a great culture. But I realized that coming from that kind of a family, that for my own sake, I wanted to have a real testimony. I didn't want to have a testimony that was just based upon the fact that I was a McConkie. And so that's what drove me to a, bro- a, a different well, where I just wanted to read and, and, and learn everything there was to know. And then see if I could put it back together in a way for myself that, that satisfied me. It wasn't just parroting back what I'd heard my cousins or my uncles say. And, and I ended up, you know, in the main agreeing with them. Uh, in some areas, I, I have a different point of view. And, uh, for example, when I finished this book, I sent it, uh, my uncle Oscar got it and read it. And he doesn't agree with me on all of these things. And so in the book, I just, whenever I came across some of these more controversial things, I just gave two points of view and said some people thought this way, some people felt felt this way. And he, he, he wrote me a wonderful letter, a, a tender letter. And he said, James, I just want to tell you how much I enjoyed the book. You, you've obviously invested some time, more than most of us do, in thinking these issues through. The only place I disagree with you is I think some of the issues that you think are unsettled are in fact settled. <laughs> and so, but there was no sense from him that he was trying to correct me or that I'd gotten it wrong. And if in the next life we find out that I'm right, he won't have any trouble changing and, and vice versa. Did you guys get into, you know, did the family gather around and have deep discussions about these kind of, I don't want to say tangents, but these these deep side issues in the gospel? All the time. I mean, we did it family home evenings and it spilled over 
into uh, it's filled over with my cousins. I mean, when when the McConkie cousins were together, the only thing you were going to talk about was was doctrine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, one of my cousins that I played squash with for years. And I used to discuss the gospel and take different points of view on various subjects. And, and just for fun, we'd, we'd say, well, if I win this match, then I'm right on this doctrine. And so there was always this sense of discussion and about about the gospel, Mormonism, Mormon history, all of these things. Well, cool. I, I think that's neat because I'm one that would love to have an atmosphere of, of people to have those kinds of discussions with. And in, in, to be frank... To find people who can delve into some of those deeper things. For most of the church, it's kind of few and far between finding people who, who are that well read on these kinds of issues. I wanted to share a, a little personal story to kind of tie up the end of this, this segment of, of talking about Elder McConkie and, and some of the issues that surrounded him. But I mentioned earlier that while in my faith crisis, I was extremely frustrated with him. I've grown to love and appreciate him. And, and here's the story. When I, had gotten into my faith crisis, one of the things that uh, I began trying to do to kind of get my way out of it was I downloaded a bunch of talks from BYU, uh, their speeches website, a bunch of uh, podcast uh, or MP3 files. And one of the talks I listened to was Brad Wilcox in his talk, My Grace is Sufficient. In in learning about grace in the gospel, I ended up turning to a, a famous talk that Elder McConkie gave, which was What Think Ye of Salvation by Grace?, and in that talk, it was, he says something that I never would have expected to come from him, thinking of him in this conservative way, in realizing that in many ways we as Latter-day Saints try to separate ourselves from evangelical Christians by talking heavily about how we're saved by works, and, and perhaps hitting that teaching a little skewed. Elder McConkie in that talk said we are not saved by works, even those of God. And, uh, and that was one of those moments where up until that point, I had almost seen him as the adversary to my paradigm, my new paradigm of faith. And for the first time, it was one of these light bulb moments where I said, you know what? This guy gets a lot of stuff right. And it's unfair to hold those few things against him when there's so many things that he, uh, he certainly gives us in our understanding of gospel terms and in theology to get the background of it he hits the nail on the head way more often uh than he messes up if that makes sense it does and i'm i'm de- i'm in, i'm deeply indebted to him for uh, for his scholarship and the way he read those scriptures and uh he it's it, it, it's it, you don't want to just look at controversial characters through the lens of controversy and limit yourself to those issues which are which are debatable and controversial because it gives you a skewed view of who the of who the individual really is. Perfect, and that's that's a good way to kind of close off that segment. And I appreciate that, uh, Jim, and and I appreciate your insight into the man. And and I know we spent a lot of time kind of talking about this, but I think it's important because people who are struggling in that feeling of betrayal and that feeling of anger will point a lot of things 
to those lines in the sand that they felt were unnecessary. And, and so I appreciate you you making uh, Elder McConkie a little more three-dimensional and in helping us realize uh, the great, wonderful, marvelous, praiseworthy things that he has done. I want to kind of wrap up with maybe a discussion between you and me. In our correspondence back and forth leading up to this interview, I shared with you some of my thoughts on doctrine. And I guess I'll kind of run through those. What, what I found, and you said at the end of this, uh, this point that you had a different view of doctrine that you wanted to share with me. But what I found was, as I looked at what leaders were saying, and I'll be specific, and I don't mean in any way to denigrate these men, uh, as I love each of them, but I want to just draw attention to the words and how I interpreted them and, and see if you can help me kind of fix the way in which I was, I'm seeing things. I listened to Elder Christofferson in his talk, The Doctrine of Christ, and on several occasions he talks about how doctrine are those truths that we have that are revealed from God. And and then Elder Anderson and Elder Christofferson both talked about the doctrine of the church is not what one leader says off in one corner somewhere or writes in a book, but it's those things that are taught unitedly by all 15 men. And then Elder Oaks in the most recent conference, um, he made the comment that while other institutions may change their policies and even their doctrines, our policies are based on truths that are revealed of God. And, and essentially, he almost made it sound like those things don't change. And, and then I see this race article come out, and it essentially says, hey, we used to teach several things as doctrine, and it's not that God came down and said, yes, that's doctrine, but now it's not. It was a matter of coming to terms with the fact that it really never was actual revealed truth. How do I reconcile all of that? Well, here's here's the way I look at it. Uh, first of all, the if, if you took all the conference talks uh, that have ever been given, they reflect the times in which those men lived. And so you have to ask yourself the question, uh, where, where do we find doctrine? And I think the answer to that question is we find it in the standard works because for something really to be doctrine in the sense that we're obligated to, uh, that it governs our behavior, it's the, it's the basis of our understanding, it, it needs to be something that has been adopted as part of the canon of the church. Um, it, it needs to have been voted on unanimously by the First Presidency, the Twelve, and then presented to the church for their sustaining vote, just like the 138th section was, just like the Declaration on Priesthood was. And so when you're talking about doctrine and defining it, we all talk about it and 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 in conference and other places, but the standard by which that we that we're obligated to understand and follow are the doctrines as they're set out in the standard works. Well, that's not to say that everything in the standard works is perfect. Uh, you know, the standard works uh, disagree uh, among themselves. You might read something in the Book of Mormon that disagrees with the New Testament. You might read something in the Old Testament that disagrees with the Doctrine and Covenants. And so you have to read for the themes, the major themes that are reiterated uh, over time from the beginning to the end, starting in the Old Testament and going through to the Doctrine and Covenants and the and the Pearl of Great Price. And those are the great grand doctrines, faith, repentance, the atonement, uh, the resurrection, the Holy Ghost, uh, the uh, moral principles as they're set forth in the uh, New Testament and in the Book of Mormon in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And those are the fundamental things that we can all agree upon. And so where I think we get in trouble is when we start going out towards the edges away from the middle that has these, these, as it were, grand truths and principles. And as we go further and further to the periphery, there's a greater and greater chance for error. And that's what happened on the, on the priesthood issue. The great fundamental principle is that God loves all of his children, all are alike unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. And yet we were out here in the periphery on an issue as to where blacks fit in this thing, and we got it wrong. And so there's a there's a great lesson in that. And so I, I agree with what these brethren are saying when the, the 12, hopefully, and most often are reiterating principles that are talked about over and over again in the scriptures, and they're not uh, going to just one chapter that might suggest something that uh, is an outlier. And so when I've, when I've talked to people about this, my... My hope is is that we'll stay focused on the founding events, the founding doctrines, and also the founding events in the church. Uh, Where we get in trouble in, in, in studying church history is when we are kind of off in the weeds on peripheral issues, and we lose our focus on some of the basic things that are very well established historically. For example, eight witnesses who saw plates and handled them and hefted them in broad daylight. Uh, Peter, James, and John's appearing, John the Baptist laying hands on Oliver Cowdery and Joseph's head. These these founding events in Mormon history are very well attested to, and uh, we, we're as certain about those as you can be about anything in history. Now, when you go out and try and figure out all of the wives of Joseph Smith and who said this and who said that, uh, it's interesting, but there's, there's sometimes when you just can't find an answer because you've got equally relevant documentation on both sides, some pro and some con. And so I think it's a matter of focusing on the fundamentals and recognizing that when we go further out to the periphery, there is a greater chance of of errors in our thinking. And I like that. And I think in many ways the gospel teaches that same thing. While it's easy to pick statements by some leaders in uh, in currently who who seem to want to narrow down the definition of doctrine and lay out a much grander wider spectrum for what it is we also have joseph who says that uh, the gospel is that jesus died and rose again and everything else is appendage to that gospel and we also have nephi in second nephi 31 where he says essentially after talking at length about faith and repentance baptism and the holy ghost he then finishes off by saying that this is the doctrine of christ and the only and true doctrine of the father and the son and uh so he does kind of narrow it down. Yeah, we have to know, you know, the Book of Mormon has this interesting phrase that whatsoever is more or less than this. And so there's there's a danger going both ways, not believing enough, but as it were, believing too much in the sense that you've gone past the mark. One of the uh, one of my favorite scriptures in the Book of Mormon is found in uh, Mormon uh, chapter nine, verse thirty-one. And uh, it's it's breathtaking when you read it in, in the context that we're speaking about. It says, Condemn me not because of mine imperfection, neither my father because of his imperfection, neither them who have written before him, but rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections, that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been. You know, there isn't anything absolute about that, and it's a, it's it's a, it, it's, it gives you a sense of humility and a sense of thankfulness that we can learn 
from the mistakes of men and prophets that have gone before us. And I think that kind of an admission in the in the uh, in the Book of Mormon itself really should should be quite comforting to us as we consider some of these subjects. I want to just wrap up talking just for another moment about your book. Uh, of course, today we've interviewed uh, Jim McConkie, author of Looking at the Doctrine and Covenants, again for the very first time. The, you said that uh, in the title of this that it's essentially written for families. In your approach in writing this book, did you did you particularly kind of like slow things down and, and make a, a strong effort to make sure that it was written at a level that even young ones who were joining in with their family and reading this could understand? No, not at all. I, I wrote it at a uh, at, at whatever my level is. I don't I'm not saying that's a high okay. level. I'm not saying I'm not saying that's a high level either. It might right. be a very low level. But right. I didn't hold back at all. And what I did is I just described the method that I used uh, along with my wife. And that that is a method uh, where I, I described what I did each Sunday. And then I said, here's a chapter that tells you about the context of this section as a parent. So you read it. And then you, as it were, take what you can and dumb it down to the extent that you need to so that a 12-year-old can begin to understand it. And so it was up to the parent to do it. And what I what I suggested as an approach is one of the marvelous things about Doctrine and Covenants is it, it is topical because Joseph is praying about a subject and gets an answer on it. For example, the 76th section on three degrees of glory or the 59th section on the Sabbath day or the 108th thirty eight section on the spirit world that Joseph F. Smith got. Uh, all of or the priesthood sections, one oh seven and section twenty and others. So there are these great doctrinal sections. And so what I did is I had my kids memorize the key doctrinal sections as a way of setting up a structure upon which they could hang other parts of the gospel. So if you said to my children, Sabbath day, they would say section 59. And then as they read in other parts of the scripture, if they found other things on the Sabbath day, they would write it in the margins in the 59th section. So they knew that if they went there, that was the beginning of their understanding on the Sabbath day. And so that was the approach to give them kind of a Christmas tree, a structure that they could hang ornaments on. And I, I'd say to them, look, when there's a speaker in sacrament meeting and they're talking on the Sabbath day, open up the 59th section and see how close they are to it. So you can make a judgment for yourself whether you agree or disagree with it. And so that was the approach. So we did the Doctrine and Covenants at age 12, and then the last year we went back to it and did it again. But as we studied all of the other parts of the Gospel, the Book of Mormon, the Old Testament, the New Testament, whenever we hit an idea in those in that in those parts of the canon, like the Sabbath day or priesthood or other things, we'd we'd say I'd say to them, okay, where is that in the Doctrine and Covenants? And then they'd go back and write in the column in the margin uh, where they found a similar idea in the New Testament, and then we'd ask ourselves, well, how does that change your understanding? So that was, I just suggest that as an approach to parents. But but the reason I, I I wanted to suggest it was not so much that I have the right approach. I mean, I guess lots of approaches would work. But in this day and age, I really believe that unless parents teach their children one-on-one, if they just rely on CES and the seminary Sunday school, uh, I don't know in this day and age that that will do it for every child. 
I think children need to have a detailed, in-depth understanding of their own religious tradition so that they learn to love it and can defend it and stay within its confines uh, throughout their life. And in order to get children to that point, they need to have their parents study with them. In the 68 section, it says parents teach your children. It doesn't say CES, Sunday school seminary and institute teach your children. And that one-on-one communication with the child about important ideas, I think, inoculates them and strengthens them in a world which is, you know, difficult at best, with or without religion. I want to ask you one last tough question and then uh, follow up with a really easy one and uh, we'll wrap this up. The The tough question is, having gone through the Doctrine of Covenants, having written this book, having expressed the some of the views you do in this book on each of these sections, giving people flexibility, one of the things that we do in the church, unfortunately, is we set Joseph Smith and other prophets, almost set them up to be near perfect and we always talk about prophets being fallible, and we and we hear that intellectually, but when it actually comes to applying it, we sometimes, as Latter-day Saints, don't seem to quite get it. But being an expert, uh, and I'm going to call you that, an expert in the Doctrine of Covenants, um, Joseph Smith is called to repentance more than once in there, correct? Yeah, that's one of the, one of the marvelous things about the book, is I often have said to my, my CES classes, uh, it would be an odd thing for somebody who was trying to garner support for his religious movement to put rebukes from God to him in the new canon of Scripture. And that, I think, is evidence of its authenticity. And and so I want to follow up. The actual question I want to ask is this. We have this spectrum of of obedience and I'll I'll try to give the two extremes and I want to ask you how you wend your way through this. There there's blind obedience which is to simply do everything you're asked and to simply toe the line on anything that is expressed by the leadership of the church with with no thinking for yourself or coming to your own understanding. And then the other side of that we talked about earlier, which is kind of this open rebellion, which is t- disagreeing on things and trying to force the church to change on these issues. How how do you uh, navigate in your own personal spiritual journey, on one hand having prophets but recognizing they're fallible, but not not necessarily writing off everything they say to the other side of that, which is you want to be you want to be obedient, you want to do the right things, you want to sustain and support them, but also recognizing that they're wrong from time to time. How do you navigate that? Well, I think I think the reason it's that way in mortality is that it forces us to take responsibility for our own spiritual lives, and we have to make judgments for ourselves, and we have to make decisions for ourselves. And I think people naturally want to just have someone who knows everything can tell it to you perfectly, and you all you have to do is listen to what they say and, and follow. Of course, there's no self-development in that, and self-development is a central part of our gospel because we believe that we're progressing and becoming more and more like God and goddesses. And so this whole issue of the imperfection of prophets, which the Book of Mormon talks about, is an issue that forces us to take 
our responsibility for our own spiritual lives. And I, I, I love this statement that's become quite famous by Brigham Young. I'm more afraid that this people have so much confidence in their leaders that they will not inquire for themselves of God, whether they are led by him. Because the only way we can strengthen each other is to help others understand why we individually believe, not just parrot back what others have said, so that we can add to the body of testimony and, and find other reasons for our hope that we have uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there there are really two errors that we can make. The first error, I think, is non-critically accepting anything a church leader may say, which may turn out to our detriment. And then the second, which is equally important, is to falsely judge the things of God to be of man. And either of these two mistakes is injurious to our spiritual well-being. And so, as Paul said, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And that causes me to want to be introspective, to be open to new ideas, and to continue searching and be willing to change my point of view as we get, as we like to say in the Mormon tradition, a further light and knowledge. Perfect. That is that is exactly what I was looking for because I think it's a difficult thing to navigate and yet somewhere in between those two extremes is this openness to information, this willingness to study, ponder, and pray, and, and to realize that it really is the Spirit, uh, as Moroni 7 talks about, that uh, that we're to know and to judge that which brings us closer to Christ and that which takes us away, um, and to have that kind of be our guide as we kind of wield our way through that. And, and I, I agree with you, it's too easy for those who are angry or bitter or struggling to toss off everything that a leader says that they disagree with. And on the other hand, there's a lot of Latter-day Saints who just too easily accept everything they're told blindly or blatantly across the board. And, and really, both of those are dangerous, as you point out. Yeah, I think so. I agree with you. So the easy question I have for you is, where can people find your book? Oh, <laughs> well, the Deseret Book carries it. Uh, you can get it through Deseret Book. You can get it through Amazon. You can get it at BYU Bookstore. You can get it from Benchmark, which is my favorite Mormon bookstore. Uh, if you don't know about Benchmark, find out about it. It has the most wonderful collection of LDS books that I've ever seen. So it's available there. Probably that's a good place to get it. Uh, but you can also get it off the, uh, uh, B, uh, I guess there are two places, Amazon and and uh, Dalton Books as well. It's there awesome. for people who'd like to get it. Awesome. Excellent. It's 721 pages, and that doesn't include the uh, the bibliography and index at the end. It's just a it's just a great book, and it's I love it. I was looking at this, and I can, I'll be honest, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but drifting through some of the sections and just seeing different sections of the D&C in here with some very, um, in layman's terms, explanations of what's going on and helping us kind of sort out some of the... Uh, uh, things that maybe on the surface appear to be contradictory or things that we don't quite understand in our present day terms. Uh, so Jim McConkie, I appreciate you so much for being on today. For the listeners, uh, be sure to check out Looking at the Doctrine and Covenants again for the very first time, uh, written by James W. McConkie II. Uh, thank you so much, Jim. You bet. And I don't expect anybody to read that cover to cover. That would be too painful. <laughs> Well, I find it to be a great read. I think people are going to love it. So I, I encourage people to, to check out the book and uh, appreciate you being on. Great to be here. I'm glad to get to know you, Bill. It's a pleasure. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing 
Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it. Mount of Thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by Thy great help I've come, and I hope. By Thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger, interposed His precious blood. That day when freed from sinning, I shall see Thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing Thy sovereign grace! Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor! Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above.